Well, good morning to you all. Uh, let's just um, bow our heads and commit this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to imagine what you are or how you like us to behave, but you have given us this very specific and precious instruction. Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that that instruction will be set in our hearts so that we may be reflectors and demonstrators of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, as we fill in some time before we start our next great series, I've chosen to go back to the book of James. Um, I see from my computer that it's some eight years since I was in this book and you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to go through the whole thing. If you remember any of it, well done. (laughs) But um, I have actually ended up substantially rewriting it because whenever I go back to these things I always wonder why on earth anybody stayed to listen to the whole thing. So we're in uh, James chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 if you can please turn there now. But before we start I need to ask something very important. Is there anybody here named Muriel? No Muriels? Oh, your middle name's Muriel. Yeah, I've heard that. (laughs) The reason for that is I'm going to take Muriel's name in vain and I want it to be very clear that I'm not talking about a real person. Okay. Let's imagine for a moment that we are in a very commonplace situation. We've been invited along to dinner at a friend's house with a number of other people and it's a marvellous meal just like K. Ross's lamb, if you've ever had that. There's a fantastic apple pie for pudding with cream, and then coffee and clever conversation follows. Everything is flowing along really nicely. Then, at half past nine, somebody stands up and announces that they have to go home to feed the dog or the mother-in-law or whatever. (laughs) That's a worry. Does everybody stay seated, just say cheerio, and the evening continues? No, because the most usual thing is that everybody leaps up and goes too. Next minute, there's nobody there, and the coffee cups aren't even cold. I call this the sheep principle. Now, I'm not aiming to criticise this at all, because there's nothing wrong with it, except maybe it would be good to stay behind to help tidy up, but I just wanted to describe a situation that we all know is quite common and ordinary and okay. I mean, everybody does it, so it must be okay, right? But are all common and ordinary social conventions okay? And more especially, how do we answer that question for those in the church, for us believers? Our topic today is not the coffee in this illustration, but the conversation. So let's read now what James has to say about one of our favourite pastimes. And I think we're going to be shocked to see that it has consequences far greater than we thought. James 4 verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, 
You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? That seems pretty obvious, you might be saying. I shouldn't say nasty things about other Christians because that makes me judgmental. And I know, like the Bible says right here, I mustn't judge others. Right, we're done here. Tears out the back, let's have a chat. And by the way, have you heard what Muriel and her husband are up to? Well, I'm sad to say that you've paid for the full three hours and I feel honour bound to deliver those. But it is Muriel and her husband I want to talk to you about because it's in that apparently innocent place that great offence to God's law begins. So we'll look at this text in four ways. We're going to look at how we break the law. We're going to look at the effect of doing that. We're going to see who owns the law. And lastly, we're going to look at the power of the law. But before we begin, I just want to quickly deal with a question that some of you might already be asking. You might be saying, well, hang on a minute. I'm saved, so I'm not under the law anymore, and why are we talking about this at all? Well, the short answer is, that's right, of course, in the sense of salvation, but we are never in a position to deny that God has given us rules that we are expected to live by. And this is the sense in which I'm speaking. So, let's move on. How we break the law. Well, of course, there's lots and lots of ways that we break the law, but the context for today's discussion about that matter is given to us right here in verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. So what does that actually mean? Does it mean that I mustn't go around saying that Muriel is is fat and her husband is stupid? Or do you know, maybe I saw Muriel visiting a fortune teller at the Gypsy Fair last week? Or maybe something really evil like Muriel is a witch and her coven meets every third Sunday to eat raw meat and howl at the moon. Well, maybe she does howl at the moon and so on. But how should I handle that knowledge? And what does it mean when I do? Whether imagined or real, this type of speech has two common names, although you'll see in the end they're pretty much the same thing. At the more extreme end, we call it slander, and on the gentler side, we just call it gossip. So that we can be sure that there's really not that much difference, we could look at the dictionary. It gives us these two definitions. Slander. A false report made maliciously to injure anyone, especially spoken, to make false reports about. And then there's gossip. A conversation involving malicious chatter or rumours about other people. Now you can see that both involve this word malice. And that's a word that means wrong or vicious or mischievous motive to speak about others. So it's obvious that even before we apply the lens of scripture to these activities, we can see that they must be wrong. But since we are talking about breaking the law specifically now, uh, what does scripture say about those things? Firstly, slander. How much time do you have? I've got a long list here. And we're going to examine every single one. No? No takers? It's a well-established principle that when we go to interpret Scripture as a guide for our actions, we always need to think about some things called context and frequency. So let me explain those. What does the text around what we are studying today say? Does it 
support or weaken the argument. That's context. And as for frequency, does the Bible say a lot about this thing or can we only find one slightly vague reference to this matter? Well, I think we've answered that question because we can see from this very long list that there's no doubt at all that slander is bad on both counts. It's described as destructive, deceitful, deluding and devouring. Joseph, David the Jews, Christ, Paul, Stephen and early Christians are specifically named as having slander hurled at them. And who was doing the hurling? It's the devil, revilers, hypocrites and false leaders. None of those people is a group that I'd be wishing to associate with. Christians are warned against it. We are told we must endure it. That's notable. We must bear it, but not return it. And lastly, we must lay slander aside. It's very interesting because it, it, it gives me the picture of it being something that we are presently carrying, but it also includes this word aside. It occurs to me that if we just put something down in front of us, it's still there as a stumbling block. But if we put it aside as a deliberate action, then it's no longer in our way and we can just go forward without any difficulty. What wisdom God has put in his word for us to find and act on. So let's be careful to consider what we say. Is it slander? If it is, then put it down beside you. Don't look back at it. Don't go back to it. And run your gospel race unburdened by that thing. That's settled. So we can go back to Muriel now. I must say, it looks like she's had one or two many pies, you know. Well, it sounds pretty tame, doesn't it? You know, especially if it's just a bit of goss between, between you and me. Both the dictionary definitions I gave you included that word malicious. Now that might sound like an overly strong word that we don't deserve to have applied to what we say in general conversation with others. I mean, isn't gossip a harmless thing? Is it? In the same way that there was a long list in the Bible counselling against slander, I could produce exactly the same thing for gossip. Here's just what one of them from Proverbs 26 has to say about the subject. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a tailbearer are like tasty trifles and they go down into the inmost body. Now of course there's lots we could say about this. But note this powerful picture of how just a little bit of gossip can be the root of a blazing fire and how penetrating its effects are. They go right down to the inmost body. And this makes it certain for us that gossip is just as bad as slander as far as God is concerned. It's just our modern understanding of the word and our terrible tolerance of sin that gives gossip a better reputation. The truth is that neither are edifying activities for Christians to practice and as we're going to see they're very offensive to our Heavenly Father. I had a good think about this word malicious because it's quite a harsh word. I I tried to understand the attitude of my own heart to see if I was personally deserving of that term 
And sadly, I am. If I'm honest, I have to agree that my motives for sharing things about other people are generally not too good. I do it because I want to seem special to, to have information that other people don't have. Maybe just to fill a space and conversation. And I think that's outrageous. What a waste of somebody's character, that last thing is, just to fill a space and conversation. It's like, it's like opening up their life wallet and then taking stuff out without their permission. <laughs> None of us would like that done to us. So why would we do it to anybody else? But I do. And perhaps you do. It's time to stop. If you search your own heart for malice, how do you score? The truth is that ultimately no good at all comes from gossip or slander for either the gossiper or the gossipee. And so they do deserve the Lord's strong words and condemnation. But as the text says, the problem is much, much larger than any human injury because it is in the space of slander and gossip where we break God's holy law. And that ought to be obvious when we think about Jesus' very specific instruction to love our neighbours as ourselves. And please remember that when he's using the word neighbour here, he's not talking about the person in the pew next to you who you love to have a half-hour conversation with after the service. It's a general term. It means anyone you meet. And we should also take special note of James's use of the word brethren here because it reminds us, reminds us that slandering anyone is bad, but slandering your church family is the worst. Why are you turning on a member of your own family? That's what our fellowship in Christ means. We are family here as we were reminded earlier in the service. What example is this of the love that we are supposed to be known by? Our next point is, what is the real effect of breaking the law? Let's, let's look at the text again. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So the real consequences of slander are huge because it sets us up in opposition to the law and it makes us a judge of the law. Before I go into talk about that in more detail, I want to clearly state that James is not suggesting that we shouldn't carefully and prayerfully approach a Christian brother or sister who is sinning and help them with that sin. It's not that kind of judging he's condemning because we are specifically instructed to do this work elsewhere in Scripture. But if we do that, we need to be absolutely certain that the sin that we are thinking of is not one defined by legalism, something like women wearing the wrong kind of lipstick in church or men wearing shorts to our service, I happen to have a, a personal interest in that latter thing. A legalistic motive means that we're using man's standards and not God's. And that makes us judges of the law, like James says here. The, the effect is the same. When we become ju judgmental of God's law, we're behaving as though it's not good enough that somehow it needs a bit of topping us, topping up by us to make it work properly. 
What nonsense. God's law is perfect and complete. And it doesn't need any help from us. We should be very careful to avoid ever thinking that we can do better than the Lord. James is taking us to a place that we probably don't spend enough time thinking about. For example, I've dished out that juicy little tidbit about Muriel. The listener is very clearly impressed by my amazing knowledge and storytelling prowess. So, do I stop there? No. Nothing. What can I, what, what can I say next that will keep them thinking that way? That's a level, level we often do this stuff at, but we really ought to be thinking past our own selfish motives to consider the bigger picture. What are the eternal consequences for our actions? How is God glorified by my speech? Is what I'm doing telling the gospel story? We may be aware at the time that what we're saying about Muriel has the power to hurt her, but it's not our specific intention, at least I hope not. And we probably wouldn't want her to know that Dave Tastod specifically is telling the whole church that she is fat. But it's generally about how far our thought processes go. And so we don't really think that what we're doing is serious. Everyone does it. But here we can plainly read that it is serious. And we should already know this aside from what James is telling us. Because if we just pause and think, there's heaps we understand about why we shouldn't be scandal mongers. Like, as I've already said, God requires us to love our neighbor. That's one of the two big ones that he told us, isn't it? He didn't have to do that for fun. We're expected to act on them, not in an unreasoning or reluctant way, but because we know that God has the right to rule us, because he is our creator. And his rules aren't horrible. They are coming from his wisdom. They are the best thing for us. We also know that we owe him a great debt for rescuing us from our sin. But most of all, we should obey for the reason that he loves us. And we love him in return. Here is where we can show that we love our neighbor in real life. With real actions and real consequences. Let's say that our friend Muriel is not a believer and gets to hear what we are saying about her. What Christians are saying about her. Do you think she's going to see the church in a wholesome light? That she will receive the gospel message favorably? <laughs> of course not. And who is to blame? What do you think she might, though, feel if she heard the opposite, that a Christian was defending her? Now, of course, these are very important points, but we mustn't get away from this matter of judging the law, that when we act in ways that don't show love for others, we're doing something more than just disobeying God. We're actually making our own judgment and thereby rejecting God's instruction. We're saying we know better than him. We don't think much of his laws and we are denying those attributes that make him sovereign. Who do we think that we are? How could we possibly imagine that we, as sinful humans, could improve on God's perfection and take his place of sovereignty? You know, that's really big time sin. I stand convicted by James' words. 
I'm horrified because I know I do this a lot. I must stop. I must remind myself who owns the law. Who determines that we should write what we should rightly do and say in any situation? Is it Christians? Is it all mankind or some combination of the two? Is it an unknowable higher power, some sort of all-encompassing cosmic wisdom? The void that binds, as I once read in a science fiction book. No. Of course, the owner of the law is God. The eternal God, the everlasting God, the God of glory, God in heaven, the living God, the King, ancient of days, creator and maker, sovereign Lord, God Almighty, God of hosts, Lord God Most High, great God. He has many names, but one character. And that is why James says there is one lawgiver. One lawgiver. That's crystal clear then. Yeah? But it isn't always that way. Humans have this worrying love of challenging authority that we explain away by using words like independence and initiative, which are good things to have in their right context, but... They shouldn't be used as camouflage for plain old willful disobedience. But we know we are guilty as charged. What can we do about that? Because if we don't do anything, it's surely not going to help poor Muriel today. So, here are a few on a regular basis. And although we've been talking specifically about slander today, they have much broader possibilities if we use them Honestly and often, the answers will help us to see where we need to change. And as you consider them, I want to say don't think we or you or them. Think I and me. Make them personal in nature. So firstly, think bigly. Do I always recognize God as eternal, everlasting, Glorious, righteous, holy, living, the King, ancient of days, creator and maker, sovereign Lord, God Almighty, God of hosts, Lord God most high. Do I acknowledge him as my master in all that I do? Is he big enough for me to give the proper respect, the fear of the Lord, as scripture says? Secondly, think, who's the daddy? Do I appreciate that God as the owner of the law has the right to decide the rules for my life, to enforce them, and to determine appropriate punishment for breaking them? Do I recognize that I cannot and should not add or subtract to any one of them? That the Lord's statutes are perfect, complete, and sufficient in every way, just as he made them? Therefore, since I do not have his qualifications, who am I to judge another? We know that God has given us a conscience to remind us of his law. It burns and pricks at us continually when we're disobedient. So isn't it a bit bizarre that when the most obvious thing to relieve that pain is to repent and obey, instead we try to change the rules to suit ourselves. It's just like watching two kids arguing over a game. 
We've all seen it. That's not fair. That's not in the rules. Well, that's how I play it. God isn't impressed by our rules since he is the ultimate and only example of righteousness. There's nothing we can add to that and we can't imagine that we can take his place. He is the rightest of right. Living our lives as though we know better is self-deception because a time of judgment is coming and our own interpretation of what is right or wrong will be absolutely useless then. Thirdly, think in the square circle. Am I really clear about just who my opponent is when I choose to be disobedient? Do I recognise that it's really God that I'm going head to head with? (laughs) And do I think I can actually make any progress against the one who made me and everything else? It's not like when the person in the pew next to you turns and says that they want you to do this or that. Maybe something you don't really want to do. In that space you might respond, well, can they make me? Can I fight them? Well, maybe you can prevail with a human, but you can't fight God. It's futile and you will lose. But, on the other hand, perhaps that person next to you is one of integrity and wisdom, and so you will cheerfully obey. They have that special strength of character that convinces us that it's safe and right to follow them. And that's how we can be certain that it is with God. It is safe and right to follow his law. Fourthly, think underfoot. Am I certain of the ground that I stand on at all times? Is my footing the rock of Christ or is it that shifting sand? You know that feeling when you go and stand in the surf on the sand and the sand's always being washed under your feet? Is that where you are? Or are you on the firm ground? Will the giver and forcer of the law that I am under apply it in the same way to everyone? doesn't matter who they are. Is the law that I am under going to be constantly tweaked to reflect new circumstances? Or was it so well done in the first place that it's going to stand exactly the same way forever? In common with other democratically elected governments, we have a body of men and women whose business it is to determine the laws of our land. And while they do argue like children a lot of the time, the outcome of their debate is usually good. But one thing is certain, the day is coming when thanks to political or societal differences, the law they made is going to change. There is no real stability in the long run. But God's law isn't like that. It It reflects his character. It is perfect. It is made once and it stands for all time. And we can rely on it to be applied equally to everyone and that the punishment for doing wrong or reward for doing right will never change. When we recognize the perfection of God's law, it should be an encouragement to live it. So praise God for his law and the stability that it promises. Fifthly, think double-sided. Do I understand that this isn't just about me? Because the Lord has feelings too. He isn't someone who's distant or passive or 
disinterested? Do I realise that any time he might act to encourage me to change my behaviour? You know, we get this constant story about the big guy up there. But God isn't like that. He is as near to us as the air that surrounds us and infuses our lungs inside us and goes through every part of our body. He sees us, he knows us so intimately. And when we are restored to him by the blood of Jesus, he loves us as a father. And his love is like that of any parent. He's not going to stand by and allow destructive behavior to go on and on. So the Lord's going to act. He's going to turn our heads back to him. And in the same way that we experienced pain by having our parents' hand applied to the seat of learning, this is often not a pleasant experience. (laughs) It's much smarter to respect the law and to love its maker. Okay, you might be saying, I have asked myself all these questions, Dave, and I know I have a problem. I have a problem. So what next? How do I deal with slander and gossip out there in the three world, in the real world. Well, I've got three more questions for you. There we go. Ask yourself these things if you're tempted to slander or gossip. What good does it do your brother? What good does it do yourself? And lastly, what glory for God is in it. Aren't these questions great? Don't they just penetrate to the heart of the matter? So I want to encourage you, if you can answer all three of these positively, then go ahead and fill your boots with gossip. But I kind of find it hard to imagine how you might do that. I've often been in situations where Christian brothers and sisters are asking how they can make a difference in their work and social environments, to be seen as believers, to be different Well, here's a great way. (laughs) Just refuse to participate in slander or gossip. Say, I'm sorry, but I don't do that. If you hear it, if possible, reproach the slanderer. I don't mean you have to take out a stick or a Bible and bash them with a thing. Just, come on, mate, you wouldn't like anybody to be talking about you in that way. If you come upon something that's really interesting that you think somebody might like to know later on, don't keep it. Put it aside. Move on. You can pray for someone who is slandered. If you have slandered someone, if possible, you should go and make things right. You should go and apologise to them. Ask for their forgiveness. But before you do that, you should do the same thing with God. We must always be on our guard because the ground underfoot is always slippery. You know, during sermon prep, I often think about the old illustration of why pointing a finger at someone should always be done thoughtfully. Because there's only one finger sticking out in their direction, but there's three pointing back at you. In the sermon, I've had the full three fingers 
because I know I'm guilty too. It's very easy to see the faults in others but not in ourselves. We need to think three times as hard. It might be hard to stop but God has called us to something higher and he has given us both the means and the motivation to get there. Okay, we've been going for some time now, but there's still a little way to go to finish the story because we still have to, we have to deal with the power of the law. So let's read the whole of verse 12 again. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Well, it turns out that once again I'm going to stray a little bit here because James's main intention is to remind us why God is the only one qualified to make the law. But I'm so drawn to the picture that's also included here of consequences and of the gospel. Consequences. It's a word and an action that we seem to be trying to remove from our society. For example, name suppression, community service, home detention and many other good ideas are often manipulated by the cynical to avoid real consequences, the kind that really encourage us to make change in our lives. But God is not bound by political correctness. He has two promises for us and the power to fulfill them, to deliver consequences. The first is that if we sin, and we all do, we break God's laws, if we do not repent and accept the saving blood of Jesus, then our ultimate fate is definitely going to be unpleasant. That's a, that's a destruction bit here. Jeremiah 25, 30-38 contains a chilling and vivid description of God's wrath against sinners. It's quite long, and so I'm just going to read a few verses. Behold, Disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the furthest parts of the earth. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Imagine, <laughs> imagine the whole world being judged by God. I would not wish to face such power and anger. Would you? <laughs> but we do have a choice, friends, because James also reminds us today that God saves. What does he save us from? Well, Scripture often speaks about how sin brings about separation from God. A separation that for an unsaved person will be eternal. And it's my suspicion, and I want to make it very clear that it's my suspicion because I don't have any scriptural evidence that this will be the ultimate torment. Never mind the fires of hell. Imagine that you die and you go to meet God. At that moment, when you are face to face with him, you will experience the full realization of the relationship that he intended for you and him. God's perfect love and acceptance as his child. You can fully see it. You can, you can fully feel it. 
And you finally understand the enormity of his promise for those who are saved by grace. (laughs) Imagine that moment. And imagine how much you will long for God's approval. But then in an instant, you are confronted by your sin and you realize it's full offense and shame. Think about how much pain that will bring. When because of it, because you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, God angrily dismisses you from his presence forever. Think about what you will have lost because you're going to be able to think about it for a very long time. But there's another possibility and it's, it's down to you in the end, a decision that you could make today. All that stuff I've already described is the same but as you stand there in shame, God, Jesus steps forward and he says, Father, this one is mine. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. God is the only lawgiver. He is the power behind the law and he is irresistible. That power can either save you from your every sin, no matter how badly or how often you've broken his law, or it can smash and destroy you. So, what fate will you choose? Salvation or destruction, his law, or yours? Repent of your sin, accept Jesus as your saviour today, and he will claim you as his own. Turn your back on his offer, and you have made your choice. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's very sobering to think about the reality of your law. But it is so uplifting and encouraging to think about how we are saved through Jesus. Lord, we thank you for making that possible for us, for the great sacrifice that you made to bring salvation to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your salvation. And Lord, we pray that there may be someone who hears this and responds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.